built him a temple. Now, what makes this moment so unique is not only the fact that the temple was built, but in this pivotal moment in Israel's history, there is both unity and there is intimacy. In fact, if you look through other pivotal moments in the Old Testament, for example, one of the absolute watershed moments was when God led his people through the water, through the Dead Sea. When God had delivered his people through 10 signs and wonders, he saved them from an enemy that they could not save themselves from. He delivered them and he brought them safely to a place where they could worship him, where they could know him, and where they could have not just a nation, but a home. Not just boundaries, but a place to call their own. So this moment is so interesting here at the building of the temple because what we see amongst God's people is unity and intimacy. I mean, even when Moses led his people out of the tyranny of Pharaoh, out of bondage in Egypt, into the promised land, it would seem only a couple hours after they walked through the Red Sea, they're all having a big party surrounding a golden calf. Quickly and shockingly, it was easier to take Israel out of Egypt than it was to take the Egypt out of Israel. But now, this moment, and this moment won't last, Israel will learn the hard way that a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. But in this moment, you could hear, you could hear the joy on Solomon's lips. You could almost feel the excitement of God's people, Israel. Because what has finally happened through God's faithfulness, through his promises, through the generosity of his people, they have built a place to commune with God, built a place to find atonement, to find reconciliation with God, and built a place that the surrounding nations and tribes would look at and say, look at the provision of their God, Yahweh. So it's all of that that has led Solomon to give this long, beautiful prayer and here is the culmination of it. This is the benediction in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54. Let's all look at the scriptures together. Let's, let's look at verse 54 together. This is the word of the Lord. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood... And bless all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Listen to this, friends. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Let's take a moment there to pause and to reflect on what we just heard. Here at the culmination of years of planning, believing, giving, and building, the temple of God is finally built. And yet what's so interesting here is not only the excitement about a structure, but the excitement about their hearts, about their worship, about their unity. They are able to rest, which is such an interesting word. Because clearly it's not just talking about how they don't have to build a building anymore. No, the rest goes deeper. The Ark of the Covenant, 
the sign of the covenant, what the Israelites would look at as the footstool of their God, as a sign of their presence among them, it finally has a home. It finally has a resting place. It will be the Holy of Holies inside this temple. God's people can finally rest, not just rest from their building, but rest because they found a home. Rest because God's place, God's ark, God's covenants has had a place to finally rest. So now that they have a home, now their seekings and their strivings and their worries and their anxieties are also being put to rest. The promise that God made to the Israelites so many generations ago, the promises that God made to those slaves who were suffering for four centuries in Egypt, those slaves who were seemingly forsaken and seemingly forgotten, those slaves that were helpless and hopeless, now God has brought into his land that he calls the what? The promised land. Not only do they have borders and boundaries, but they have a place to worship. They have a home. They can rest. King Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8 is a testament to God's promises and also simultaneously a challenge, a challenge to God's people. If God is not worthy of our trust, how many of us know this? If God is not worthy of our trust, meaning if he is unable or unwilling to fulfill the promises that he made, then we would condone and even justify trusting in the things of the world, trusting in the promises of the world, trusting in the vain, empty deceptions of the world over and above God. Oh, but if our God is able, if our God is willing, if our God is not only a promise maker, but a promise keeper, then what is keeping us from trusting him entirely? That's the good news right here. In this passage, in this moment, through Solomon's prayer, he is praying to God, but he's also beseeching the people. He is acting as both king and priest. He is praying that we, as God's people, would trust God. The good news is this. God is both a faithful promise maker and a faithful, hallelujah, promise keeper. As he said here, not one word, not one word has failed all of God's good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Not only is God a wonderful promise maker and promise keeper, but friends, there is no greater, nothing stronger in all the universe than the promises of God. Not only did Solomon know this, but Joshua did as well. When they were on the verge of entering into the promised land, Joshua said this in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. This is a great verse to write down. This is a great verse to memorize. It's a great verse to return to. Joshua says this, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All have come to pass. What Solomon celebrated, what Joshua celebrated, is also what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament celebrates. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold fast. Can we say that together? Hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering. Let's say that together. Without wavering. 
Very good. For he who promised is faithful. Not only let us hold fast, not only hold, but hold it fast. Hold fast our hope, but let us do it without wavering. What is able to instill in us and what is able to help us to hold on to our hope without wavering? You see, friends, we can hope and we could try to hold on to hope. Believe it or not, hope can be very easy. We put our hope in all kinds of different things. Oh, but hope without wavering is very, very rare. Not many people are able to do it. So that's why our hope is built not on us. Our hope is built on nothing less than God's word and his righteousness, right? How does that hymn go? Peter said it well in 2 Peter chapter 1. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His power has provided, his power has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. All that we need can be found in God. Peter continues though. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I love the imagery of this. By which he has granted to us through what? Quote, his precious and very great promises. When's the last time, friends, we just paused, we reflected, and we thank God for who he is and the promises that he made to us? Because on a daily basis, we all deal with the reality of promises, do we not? You ever stop and thought, like, why do we make promises? Why do we feel inclined to do that? Why is so much, not only of our personal lives, but through contracts, our economy, uh, our relationships, through pledges and through covenants, um, through marriage, vows, why is so much of our lives surrounded on, based on, built on promises that we make to each other? So here's what I submit to you to think about. It is the very reality of a future. It is the very reality of a future that is unknown and unforeseen that we feel led to make promises. In fact, that's why promises aren't just words, but we look at them as, in fact, binding, valuable arrangements and agreements. Promises lead us to peace. But in a world filled with contingencies and counterfeits, we often are heartbroken when promises do not find their keeping. So yes, we shape our lives by the depth, the length, and the width of our promises to others. We're thrilled when people make promises to us. We're inspired when we make promises to others. And then we are broken when those promises are not fulfilled or those promises are broken. That's where the word heartbroken comes from. Now, if there's one verse, if there's one truth, if there's one thing that you hear today, I hope that you would hear what I'm about to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because this talks about not only how God makes his promises, but how God fulfills his promises. This passage is so beautiful. This passage is life-changing. If we understood it, if we received it, if we walked in it, you ready? Anybody? Okay. Okay. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen. For no matter how many promises God has made, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. And so through him, through Jesus, 
the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God, it gets better. Now it is to God who makes us both, us and you, to stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Oh, that's good news. That's really, really good news. But it's also very, very clarifying. Friends, do we hear the amen in this passage? Do we remember this anointing? We can stand. Why? Because we're sealed. We are his Filled with his spirit, his promises, his spirit, his seal, his son, guarantee what is to come. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your heart. Not just a divided heart and not just a distracted mind. He is worthy of all of it. Would you trust him this morning? Would you trust his words this morning? Because think of it, if God's promises are true, then so is God's word. If it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for the Bible to be false. The Bible, the best-selling book of all time, the best-selling book of 2018, the best-selling book of 2019, I can tell you, I can predict, I don't claim to be a prophet, it will be the best-selling book of 2020. Not only that, but even today, even today, There are 273,972 Bibles being sold or given away just today. In fact, during this hour year at church, there are 11,415 Bibles given away or sold this hour. Every minute, 190. Every second, three Bibles are bought. Three more just happened. (laughs) You have to know how unique our generation is. You have to know how how gifted we are. Yes, I know it comes with an opposite side of the spectrum. There is a flip side to all the information that's flooding our minds every single second. But you have to know how unique our generation is, friends. No generation to ever walk planet Earth has had more access to God's promises as us. So the question is not, is the Bible available? The question is, Do God's people know his word and his promises? Because this can lead us to not only greater joy in following Jesus, but it saves us from greater frustration, right? We are naturally born into this world with a nature that's allergic to God's holiness. We are born with this nature that, yes, probably believes in God on some level, But even as we deny God, rebel against God, run from God, we expect God to bless us with a certain amount of years, a certain amount of health, a certain amount of wealth. And when he doesn't do it, even though we're running from him, even though we sin against him, we get angry with him. We start to blame him. All of a sudden, those who are not very spiritual or quote-unquote religious get real religious with a fist raised to heaven saying, God, you're not doing your job. And what's this job supposed to be? Oh, that's why we need to return the gospel. That's why we need to return to the Bible. So we could say with Joshua, we could say with Hebrews, we could say with Solomon, his promises are true. But if we don't know what his promises are, if we don't know where his promises stop and the world's promises begin, don't be surprised when you're constantly frustrated. 
Do you know what God has spoken? Do you know what God has said? So out of that, out of that security of knowing who God is and his promises, then Solomon prays a challenge for God's people. Let's all look at the back of the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 57. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 57. The prayer continues, Solomon continues. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our what? Hearts to him. Walk in all his ways to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded to our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. You see their mission here? This is their mission. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Verse 61, this is the important takeaway, ready? Let your heart therefore, therefore, because of everything we've heard, let your heart therefore be wholly true. I love that. Some versions, some translations say entirely committed. Therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commands as at this day. Beautiful prayer. How many of us want an undivided heart? How many of us are tired and weary of living this constant paradox between one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? Let me tell you a story. It's the story of a nurse at a pediatric ward, a nurse that would meet with little children often, a nurse that loved to not only care for the little children, but also loved to listen to the heartbeats of children. And what she would do is when she would have a little child come, if the child felt comfortable enough to do it, she would take the stethoscope off of her ears and then put it on the ears of the little child and help the little child hear his or her own heartbeat. And sure enough, as soon as they had the stethoscope on, the little children would hear their heartbeat. Bum, 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 bum. And all their eyes would look up at the, uh, the uh, pediatric nurse and filled with wonder to think, that's going on inside of me all the time. So the story goes that there was a young boy named David, just four years old, and he came forward to the nurse, and the nurse put on the stethoscope, and David listened to his own heartbeat. And not only did his eyes widen, but his eyes started to water. So the nurse says, David, what do you hear? True story. I hear Jesus knocking on my heart. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says to a church, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open, I would come and sup and have fellowship with them. And of course, the imagery is shocking, right? I mean, he's standing outside of a church. He's knocking on the door. Jesus is outside the church. They're doing church without Jesus. Does that happen sometimes? Lord forbid. But it also applies to Christians. Because Christians, man, I mean, we could so kind of ease into some kind of moralistic, some kind of self-righteous, some kind of self-sufficient version of Christianity. Never fully giving ourselves into sin, but never fully giving ourselves to Jesus. Our hearts are divided, even if we have the exterior pretense 
of following him. So the little boy knew it well. Jesus is knocking on his heart, knocking on our hearts. The word heart in scripture is used over 700 times, which means it's kind of a big deal. The Bible says, what is the first thing we need when we come to Christ? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? The Bible says, a broken and contrite heart. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? The Bible says, give me your heart. What is true circumcision? Circumcision of the Very good. What is genuine obedience to obey from the What is saving faith to believe with all of your Where ought Christ to dwell? Amen. He ought to dwell, as the Bible says, in our hearts by faith. So the heart in Scripture, the heart refers to our inner man, the core of our being, our mission control center. Solomon, in a different book of the Bible, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23. Hear these words, powerful words. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Let me read that again. Above all else. Sounds pretty important. Above all else, guard your what? Heart, for everything you do flows from it. True or false? As you hear us say all the time, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So the heart is not just physiology or anatomy. The heart is not just even your feelings and emotions. No, in Scripture, it's your will. In Scripture, it's where we connect with God. It's where we make our decisions. It's out of the overflow of the heart, as we will see that we are revealed to be either a follower of Christ, presenting good fruit, or our hearts are maybe hard to him. I like how one pastor, one pastor, he put it, talking about guarding your hearts, teaching on this text. What made this pastor's experience so unique was before this pastor was in the Lord's army, he was serving in the military. He was serving as an armyman. So he knew when Solomon says, above all else, guard your heart, what that really looks like lived out. So in in a teaching, in a sermon on this passage, this retired army man, this pastor said this. Everyone listen. He says this, quote, when I was in the U.S. Army, I remember we had to pull guard duty many times. The purpose of guard duty was to ensure was to ensure other soldiers, equipment, or areas were protected from the enemy. Friends, do we have an enemy? We definitely do. I can recall that in basic training or boot camp, we've had to memorize three general orders. And he shares with them the first one. The first one, this retired army pastor says, the first general order is, I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved of my post. He said this, when we were properly relieved, there was a password that was spoken between the person on guard duty and the one that was relieving him. If the improper password was given, you were not properly relieved. The safety of all that was being guarded, he understood, depended upon you, the person on guard duty. If something went wrong or if the enemy was able to get access into that which you were responsible for guarding, then you were held accountable and consequences were inevitable. Solomon says, guard your hearts above all else. From everything you do flows from it. 
This helps us to understand why. When Jesus says, come and follow me, we say, nah, not yet. When Jesus beckons us to forgive each other, we say, not ready. When Jesus beckons us, yea, commands us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor, to forgive and to love our enemies, to proclaim the gospel, to open our mouths and speak Christ, we say, tomorrow? It's worship. But at some point, our hearts were left unguarded. Part of the reason we don't have ears to hear what Jesus would say to us is because our hearts are closed and hardened because we have let other things in. We have let down our guard and the world subtly, maybe very deceptively, have come in and filled our hearts, our affections, as the Puritans used to say, our affections were things that will not last, things that will not deliver, and things that, yes, left unchecked, will hurt you, if not destroy you. We let down our guard. Christians, how many of us, you don't need to raise your hand, you don't need to say amen, you don't even nod your head. How many of us, this is us. Our hearts are divided, our minds are distracted because we put down our guard too easily. We need to be ambassadors of the gospel to remember that we're here on mission and ambassadors never assimilate into the culture around them. So to build upon this truth, Jesus himself, Christ himself said this, for no good tree, this is from Luke 6, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Makes sense, right? For each tree is known by its fruit, Jesus continues. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil in his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. If we're shocked at some of the things that come out of our mouths, we should be more shocked that those things were residing in our hearts. We could pray all the live long day that God would close our lips and guide our tongues. Pulpit's dangerous. But we should really pray that God would change our hearts, right? James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not the passions that are war within you? How many of us know this? It's World War III inside of me. We tend to look at the world around us and say, Why is the world so distrusting? Why is the world so violent? Why is the world as the world is? We minimize our own sin, maximize the sins of others around us, All the while, there's a battle waging inside of us. We shouldn't be surprised at the battles of the world when God has not conquered our hearts and we have not ourselves raised that white flag of surrender. Jesus said this, speaking directly to something that vies for the lordship and the love of our hearts the most. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what church? There your heart will be also. One plus one equals two. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And if our heart is not finding its treasure in Christ, something else has taken it. So the simple truth is this. If you're taking notes, 
Commit your heart to Christ as your treasure. So your treasure does not replace Christ in your heart. What does it mean to trust him? For our hearts to be wholly committed to God, knowing full well that it will lead to peace, but it will also come with a price tag. There's always, always a price tag. There's always an amount of sacrifice, even as there is joy. There's always a cross before a crown. There's always sacrifice before success. There's always reproach before reward. The call of a committed heart, it may cost you popularity. It may cost you possessions. It may cost you positions, but make no mistake. Make no doubt about it that a life without a heart wholly committed to Christ has an even greater price tag than a heart that does. A heart that's not committed to Christ has a greater price tag than whatever the Lord might be leading us to say, to do, to step out in faith, and to live out in our lives. Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer, said like this. I love these words. Almost echoing the words of Solomon. My heart is his. My heart is his by election. My heart is his by regeneration. My heart is his by covenant, and my heart is his by his conquest. I am wholly his. I am supremely his. I am particularly his, and I am eternally his. Whether we're talking about Thomas Brooks the Puritan, King Solomon, whether we're talking about some of these prophets and apostles that went before us, the question is, what is vying for the affections of your heart? And are we willing to lay it down? Are we willing to surrender? And as a church family, are we willing to move forward trusting and believing in God's promises? So at this time and at this moment, I'm going to ask everybody to pray. If you're new to Coltsdale Community Church, what you're about to see and what you're about to witness does not necessarily pertain to you unless the Holy Spirit puts it on your heart. What I'm going to ask you to do is to partner with us. We've been on this journey for months. We've been on this spiritual journey recently for four weeks. And now as the Lord has spoken to us, as the Lord has revealed us, as the Lord continues to reveal his unity and his joy amongst us, we're going to invite you first off to pray. To pray and ask the Lord how he might be able to use your first fruits, not your leftovers, your first fruits to live out the principle of what we saw in the temple. Yes, the purpose of the building has changed. Now you are the building of God. Now you are the temple of God. Now Christ dwells in you, all who trust and believe in him. But even as we prepare and plan to see the function of the building remain the same so that all the nations might know, so all the world might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. I hope that what we can do, once again, this is for us. Church, this is us. We're, we're going to get some business done right now, okay? If you consider Colts Neck Community Church to be not only your church, but to be your family. Not only your family, but to be part of the mission. We're asking you to pray. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. They have pledge cards that they're going to hand out. And I'm uh, asking some of our musicians to just play some music. Ushers, if you could hand those pledge cards out now, that would be wonderful. Play some music, and we're going to give you a couple minutes just to sit, to pray, and to ask the Lord if he's leading you to make a pledge. If he's not, praise God. 
Because here's the good news, church. Here's the good news, friends. If God guides us, then God will provide for us. And friends, if this is God's will, that we would continue to expand this ministry, there is nothing on earth that's going to stop it. So why not give with joy? Why not partner with us? Why not pray on how you can make a pledge to see this vision become a reality? Let's spend a couple minutes in prayer. If you need to, talk with your wife, talk with your family. But let's pray together.